The Gospel portion is from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 15. It's a tradition to stand in the presence of kings. We are about to hear the voice of the great king, so please stand as we honor the teaching of Jesus. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's um, pray. So, Father, we uh, come to you with all our distractions and discomfort, and uh, we ask that um, you would uh, send your Holy Spirit into our midst to teach us, to guide us, to direct us, in your ways and in the way of your Son, Jesus of Nazareth. Pray that your word will be alive and challenging to each one of us. And we do ask this so, that your Son, Jesus, will be glorified and the sheep of your pasture will be blessed and well provided for. Amen. One day, one day, just wait and see, the Lord will send enough money for an air conditioning. <coughs> Remain in faith, everyone. I'd like to um, <coughs> talk about all three passages because all three passages are uh, incredible in the way that they connect and overlap with each other. And sometimes the lectionary works that way. You might call uh, uh, this week's selection of scripture uh, a home run with all bases loaded. And I'd like to talk about the three passages which undoubtedly and obviously, yes, uh, highlight God's mercy and the mercy that we as individuals can give to, to others, 
like to talk about that in the context, and I know this might sound a little unusual and a bit weird, but I'd like to talk about it in the context of the fear of the Lord. And you might think, well, what does mercy have to do with the fear of the Lord? Because mercy is about grace and God's goodness and there's nothing I deserve. And the fear of the Lord is about reverence and it's about maybe even sneakingly having some fear of God, worry about judgment and, and the like. Well, first of all, let's get our terms straight. The fear of the Lord is about reverence, but that definition only does the term a little bit of justice. And I came across a, a Lutheran theologian that I like by the name of Rolf, Rolf Jacobson. And he had a, a, a marvelous, marvelous definition for the fear of the Lord. He said the fear of the Lord is a full appreciation of who God is. A full appreciation of who God is, not some limited blinkered view. And once we come to that appreciation or that understanding, then we can respond accordingly. Yes, and part of our response, yes, has to be reverence or the fear of sin or acknowledging that God who does love does sometimes judge. And so the fear of the Lord and mercy, well, we'll see how these all fit together. Because in each passage, yes, in each passage, um, there is a response that's needed to God's mercy. Yes, God's mercy is undeserved. God's mercy uh, is not anything we can earn. But in every case, every case, we need to respond to God's mercy. And those responses, as we will see, have a lot in common. And at the same time, they are varied. And in every case, they will be challenging. So first passage, which comes to us from Matthew's Gospel, um, we have Jesus who is, um, you might say, at the peak of his ministry. He has become something of a pop star uh, or a, uh, a solution to everybody's problems. He is ministry is going very well and folks in Capernaum want to try to grab him and make him king. Yes, they try to set him up as the king messiah. And of course, it's one thing to recognize who Jesus is. It's another thing to um, fully understand what his agenda or his program is. And so Jesus, at the height of his ministry, says to his disciples, uh, gentlemen, pack your bags, we're going on a retreat. And Jesus goes north from the lake into an area that's not very Jewish. And no one is there to say, teach me, heal me, 
I need a free lunch. Yes, Jesus is under no pressure. And of course, it's when he gets to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he'll ask that question, that very, very central question. Yes, who do men say that I am? And then he will ask the disciples, who do you say that I am? And on the way, he encounters a Phoenician woman or Canaanite woman. And uh, the story is shocking, isn't it? Because it appears that Jesus has no interest in helping her or that in some way she needs to twist his arm, yes, to, uh, to get him to uh, heal or to bring deliverance to his, uh, his daughter. And of course, Jesus has said more than once, I'm, I, am, uh, I am sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. My focus is on Israel and the Jewish people. Later, yes, I will give you the commission to go to the nations. But now, yes, our focus, our focus you might say, is very local or even somewhat parochial. And when encountering this woman, um, the, the way the passage is interpreted or understood uh, throughout the history of the church at times has been very, very difficult. People have gone to some really wild extremes, uh, almost to the point, well, this is the way that Jews should teach, not should treat non-Jews. Well, this is certainly expected. Or maybe this is um, the way men and women uh, should relate to each other. But here you have a Canaanite woman, someone who's not a, a follower or worshiper of the God of Israel. And this Canaanite woman does, really does the incredible. She first uh, and foremost, she calls him Lord. She then calls him the son of David. Yes, now the son of David, who was the son of David? Solomon, in, in the day in which Jesus lived, what was Solomon noted for? Why was he famous? Because he was known to be a healer. He was known to be the one who could deliver you from demons. And people prayed for deliverance and healing in the name of Solomon. So she's acknowledging that Jesus is the son of David. He is a healer. He is one who can deliver, deliver from the demonic. And she kneels in front of him. And they engage in a conversation. <clears throat> And again, the conversation might sound shocking, but at the same time, the conversation might instead just be banter. It might be peasant banter. It might be <clears throat> the way Jews and non-Jews talk to each other in a half serious, half humorous way. My teacher many, many years ago, the late, great Bob Lindsay, uh, who was a Baptist pastor here in Jerusalem and a great New Testament scholar, always would teach that the, the, the encounter between Jesus and this woman was, um, should be seen 
uh, in the light of uh, first century humor. And he would say many things that Jesus, some of the things that Jesus said should be, understand, uh, should be understood as being humorous, as being a way to teach. And what's, uh, I think what goes a little further is that this woman not only acknowledges that Jesus can heal, but she goes on to acknowledge that salvation, basically, or provision, or healing, whatever you want to call it, comes from the Jewish people. She says, I'll take the crumbs from the table of Israel. Now, that's an amazing, right? It, it, it's an amazing set of admissions on her part. But what is perhaps the most phenomenal is that she refuses to give up. She won't quit. She understands what faith does, not simply what faith is, right? Uh, biblical faith, yes, is more often than not, not something that happens up here or some kind of intellectual ascent to doctrine. Biblical faith is persistence. Biblical faith refuses, yes, refuses sometimes uh, to quit, right? Biblical faith um, sometimes exercises kind of a nerviness or a chutzpah. Um, and she, you might say, she just is going to um, engage Jesus and engage Jesus. She does it respectfully, but she continues to engage him until she, until Jesus you know, says, he acknowledges, great, great is, um, great is her faith. So this, here's a woman who accesses, you might say, or who um, enables the, the mercy of God through Jesus to flow to her, and it works by faith, right? The, the response in this case, and in the other two cases that we'll look at in just a moment, right, always centers around faith. But what kind of faith, right? What kind of faith are we talking about? Not something merely intellectual, Right? but something that's tough, uh, something that refuses to quit, something that doesn't take, uh, that refuses to take no for an answer. Yes, that is true biblical emunah. It's faithfulness, right? It's uh, a certain kind of loyalty or a certain kind of persistence, yes? The mercy of God, yes, you might say is unleashed Yes, because of her faith, all right? And then we have a second story. And the second story is uh, not only, uh, comes from the book of Romans, and this is a big story, all right? This is something very, very theological. And in this story, we have Romans chapter 11. The key theme is mercy, mercy, mercy. Uh, and we have, the recipients of God's mercy. Who are the recipients of God's mercy? Well, unexpectedly, it's not only the Jewish people, but it's the nations of the world, those who have been far away from God and outside, uh, outside the commonwealth of Israel. And unexpectedly, 
without, I have a, a Jimi Hendrix moment here. Yeah, or maybe I'm sounding like Pink Floyd. After all, this is the 50th year of Dark Side of the Moon. And you don't want me to start singing Dark Side of the Moon, do you, from beginning to end? Joseph, yeah, maybe. if we meditate together. Oh, much better. <laughs> okay. Um, so here we have a bigger story. In fact, it's kind of shocking because Paul is perplexed uh, that the messianic agenda or the messianic um, program isn't working exactly the way he thought it should was going to work. Right? It didn't fit his, you know, interpretation of scripture the messianic program was going to be that Israel would accept Jesus, become his disciples, uh, and then take the message to the message of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, to the ends of the ends of the earth. The nations would come in, come up to Jerusalem, yes, and of course you would have redemption and the world to come, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera but it's not happening that way. What's going on? What's so weird is that the Jewish people are reluctant. The Jewish people, you might say, are not sure. Many are saying no, although a remnant says yes. And Gentiles yeah, are taking advantage of the opportunity and they are joining Yes, this messianic movement in large, large numbers. Yes, and in chapter 11 of Romans, Paul is, um, Paul has, you might say, another difficulty on his hands because the Gentiles are so overjoyed. Uh, they're so thrilled that they're, they're being accepted by the God of Israel that they're being redeemed by uh, the death of Jesus on the cross and more, that they become very haughty and very proud and start to um, look down upon uh, the Jewish people. And this is the beginning of supersessionism or replacement theology. And the Jewish people uh, or, or the, these new Gentile converts begin to uh, be full of pride. They begin to think of themselves as being the recipients of God's mercy, while the others, the Jewish people, are being cursed or being punished. And Paul has to, to correct these Gentile converts in Rome because they indeed are recipients of God's mercy. They're recipients of God's grace but it, their response is wrong. They don't fully understand, yes, how they should respond to the, the gift that's been given to them, yes, in Jesus the Messiah. And so Paul has to remind them, and let's look at the verse in which we have a reminding, we have, we have this. Paul has to remind them the, Here's the way you respond to the grace of God. 
and it says, uh, it says the following. It says, if some of the branches had been broken off, that's the people of Israel, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive tree, do not boast over those branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, okay, but the root supports you. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. Okay. So, Paul is, don't be arrogant. Don't be proud. Don't misinterpret, yes, what God has given you. Don't look down upon others because you somehow think they may be unworthy of God's mercy and God's grace. In fact, Paul goes on to argue that the Jewish people also will be recipients of God's mercy. But he says, he reminds this church, yes, the root, yes, you know, you are not the root, the root supports you. Now, what is the root in this case? What is the root? Now, Bible scholars, professors, yeah, they all have a different answer. But basically, there are three possible options. Option number one is that the root is Abraham. So maybe this is Abraham. That could be convincing. Root number two is that we're talking about the remnant of the Jewish people who are Jewish, pe are Jewish believers. And possibility number three, we're talking about the entire Jewish people. Well, in all three cases, yes, all, all three, are they not all Jewish? Yes, Abraham and his descendants, the Jewish believers, the Jewish people. And how did all three come into being? The call of Abraham, yes, this rem Jewish remnant that follows Jesus and more. They all came into being because of God's mercy and God's grace, right? God called Abraham, but we don't. What, for what reason? What, what good thing was there in Abraham? At least in the text, it doesn't tell us, right? God's, it's God's mercy and God's grace that revealed Jesus, the, the Messiah, to a remnant of Jewish believers. It's God's mercy and God's grace, yes, that brought about the election of the Jewish people. So when we talk about Jewish roots, or when we talk about Hebraic roots, it's very good to go back to the context, to go back to uh, the Hebrew language, to go back to the uh, Jewish understanding of Bible, et cetera, et cetera. It's a very worthwhile endeavor. But at the same time, yes, at the same time, what we're actually returning to is the mercy and the grace of God, right? It's wonderful to um, eat falafels. It's wonderful to uh, blow the shofar. It's wonderful to sing songs in Hebrew, right? In fact, 
when people began to, many Christians in, in recent years, the last 20 or 30 years, have uh, woke up and they start to see, hey, God is at work amongst the Jewish people. God is at work in Israel. God is doing things amongst the nations. And uh, after reading this chapter, many, many Christians start to say, well, you know, I need to express my support. I'm going to sing those songs in the minor key, and I'm going to eat those kosher dill pickles, and I'm going to even support the Israeli government, you know, uh, and all that they and all that they do, because after all, they're so beleaguered. Yes, that's not what Paul is saying here, right? Paul wants us to acknowledge that what is behind all this, and with all due respect to the Jewish people, with all due respect uh, to their faithfulness over the centuries, uh, to their endurance of suffering, but behind all of this is God himself, right? The Jewish people are a great people because the God of Israel is a great God, right? We, we cannot forget that focus. Right? This is the mercy of God that's at work. And further, Paul goes on to tell us a, uh, about God's wisdom, God's grace, I mean, sorry, God's, uh, how, God's, uh, let me read it to you, sorry. He says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Does it end there? It doesn't end there. It's the, the response to the mercy that God has given us and to his dealings with the Jewish people, yes, is as follows. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We hear those verses preached all the time but they're not preached in response, right, to God's mercy. So Paul, in essence, is saying to those of us who have received God's mercy and to those of us, who, perhaps some of us who have not, is that we need, to, we need to respond with humility and modesty, yes, not arrogance, Right? And this might not have anything to do with the Jewish people. This might have to do with members of our own family. Or it might have to do with someone from another denomination that we don't agree with. Or from another ethnic group. We can't say, oh, I've got it and they don't. And boy, you know, maybe there's something about me that, uh, you know, that I'll uh, receive the grace of God. Right? And by the way, it also calls for patience, that God is at work, 
but God is at work according to his own timetable and according to his own plan. And many times we want to somehow rush God's program, especially when it comes to Israel or the Jewish people, and it's not possible. And finally, and very quickly, there is the story of Joseph, Joseph and his family. And in this particular, in this, uh, uh, in this story, we have, yes, mercy given, mercy received. Who receives mercy? Joseph. But we also have mercy given. And the family of Joseph, let's, let's begin with Abraham, sorry, let's begin with uh, Isaac and Rebecca. Uh, continue, continuing on with Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. This family is a disaster, is, is it not? It is a case study in family dysfunction. It, one therapist couldn't, would never be able to fix this. You need a staff, right? You need a staff to wade through all of the deception, yes, the jealousy, the pride, uh, the violence, which let's, let's be kind to Jacob. Well, he learned this from his parents, and uh, Isaac learned it from Sarah and Abraham. Right? This is a f these family patterns, or this uh, you might say this generational sin. It wasn't something that started with uh, uh, Abraham and his tw and his twelve sons. It's been in the family for a long time. It's been a cancer in this family. Yes, that has been. Uh, been extremely, extremely destructive. And yet, when this story comes to a, you might say, to a conclusion or to, and to a climax, yes, in which Joseph, who himself sinned in his pride, when Joseph confronts his family, Joseph doesn't take the opportunity to say, hey, I'm, he doesn't say to himself, I'm going to get even. He doesn't say, I'm going to get some revenge. I'm going to torture them until they say they're sorry. What does Joseph do? Joseph, because he's also been the recipient of God's mercy, right? He was, he was rescued. He was brought into a place of great power and uh, authority. He then uses what God has given him, right, that mercy, and extends it, uh, extends it to his family. And what's so beautiful about the story is not only does Joseph not get revenge, um, but that Joseph understands that um, the right <coughs> response you know, to God's mercy uh, is uh, first and foremost is not only to give mercy back, but in the process he forgets and forgives what's happened to him and instead of focusing on some kind of revenge or justice, understands it as, as providence. Yes? He understands that God was at work in all of this. And he doesn't hold a grudge or doesn't 
remain traumatized. Instead, he responds, right? He receives mercy and he responds by giving mercy. So, so in the first account, it was Jesus who was merciful. In the second account in Romans, we talk about the mercy of God. We talk about the mercy of God to, to, to Israel and to the nations. And here we have something very small and domestic, and actually something I'm sure that we can all relate to. Yes, when, when there's dysfunction or broken relationships in our family. And I think in every case, right, mercy, what mercy does is to bring healing, right? There's healing involved uh, in every one of these stories. When Jesus encounters this Canaanite woman, think of the long history of uh, Israel and the Canaanites, right? Israel comes into the land. Israel displaces the Canaanites, or many of them are killed. But later, because the Canaanites remain, then they're in many ways seduced by the Canaanites, right? And they follow the, the local gods. Um, and there's this long, you might say, um, this is long, bitter history. And yet, Jesus meeting a Canaanite woman, yes, it points to, what does this point to? Not only this woman's faith, right, and her chutzpah, but it points to the potential of healing long, bitter, you know, intractable relationships. And then Israel and the nations, where one time and still to this day, we have hostility, right, and misunderstanding. Um, but God wants to bring healing to this relationship right, between Israel and the nations. And after all, the world is divided into two, Israel and the, nation, Israel and the nations. Um, and again, how, is this, how does this healing happen? The healing happens, the healing happens because of the mercy of God, right? That mercy, right, brings healing. But of course, we must respond in the, to the mercy in the right way. And can I just say for a moment, again, the tragic, tragic history of the church is that we did to the Jewish people what we did to one another. Yes, we, because God was merciful to us and he saved us, right? Nothing we earned, we're saved by grace, then we have a false identity. And because our identity, we don't understand exactly who we are, we go out and we persecute or we try to disinherit uh, the Jewish people. And at times there's, uh, there's murder or even genocide of the Jewish people, yes. Uh, and sadly, right, sadly, there's been no fear of the Lord on our part. What is the fear of the Lord? An appreciation of who God really is and actually, and who we are in all of this. And when we, we, we weren't killing Jewish people, we were killing Catholics or killing Protestants. Yes, because 
you know, some, they, we have it and they don't. And when they claim to have it, we, we, we have to somehow stop them or prevent them from uh, claiming that uh, they share in God's mercy the way that we do. And then finally, this, there's a healing in the family of Jacob, right? This, this family story that takes up chapter after chapter in, in Genesis. And again, it points to us, points, it get, points the way to us that families, we don't have to live, yes, with uh, dysfunction or strife. Yes, that the mercy of God is the, the first step that brings God's healing. And uh, it brings a, the, you might say, the, the, um, the ability, right, of God's uh, program uh, on a small family basis or on an international basis to begin to work together. But the question is, how do we respond to the mercy that God gives us? What is the response, right? How do we understand? And again, I just wanted to point out in each case, yes, in the case of um, Jesus and the Canaanite woman, she has faith. The Gentiles who receive God's mercy stand in faith. Joseph at the end of the story, yes, has enough faith to say, what you, the brothers, meant for evil, God meant for good. And this will not bring about not only your salvation, but a healing in our family. All of this, I think, right, the way we respond is in the fear of the Lord. It's an appreciation of who God is, what God gives us, yes, and what he requires of us, not as repayment, but as the proper, proper response, yes, to the, the, the free gift of God. So let's close with this passage. The passage uh, comes from Psalm 103, and it says the following. Please listen to the terms that we have been using, or to the language that we've been using this evening. And Psalm 103 says the following. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and all all my innermost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, all my soul, and forget not his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desire with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Wonderful. The, word, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made his ways known to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For high above the heavens, yes, is the um, high above... Uh, so for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so is his great love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far that he removed our transgressions from us. As the father has compassion on his children, the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. 
but from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. Amen. Amen. The fear of the Lord and the mercy of the Lord. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.